0: Hi everybody, how are ya? Okay, a couple things to say before we get into the Bible. First off, we want Katie back. Where is she? Like, when we said, we want to send our best with you, we didn't really mean it. We meant a couple of them, but not Katie, so. Secondly, it is really a joy to be here. I did invite myself, so if it's really bad, don't blame Josh. Um, But it really is a joy to be here. I deeply love and respect Josh and Abby and all of the leaders here that I know. And I think the world of the Porters, um, of you guys, and those of you that I know, and we're really behind you and believe in you 110%. And it's such a joy to see a bunch of you that I've not seen in a few months. And then finally, you I was just in worship, and I was thinking about what kept coming back to my mind was my junior year in high school. I grew up in a megachurch context. I spent most of my life in a large church context. But when I was a junior in high school, I was a part of this little church plant down in Newberg, Oregon and uh, it was this life-changing experience for me. And I was there, I think, I wasn't there on the first Sunday, but like a month or two in, and it was about this size, maybe smaller. I remember the pastor, this was like the late 90s, and so this was cool in context, all right? But the pastor had this 1977 Volkswagen bus that I later bought from him as my first car, and we would carry the entire sound system around in his old Volkswagen hippie bus. We all had Birkenstocks, and it was like 1998, all right? So it it was a moment, it was a thing. And that experience was what inspired me to go on to become a pastor and a teacher and eventually to plant a church. I remember being a part of a church plant from the ground up, just a few dozen people scrappy, who's going to do this, who's going to do that, coming together around the body and the blood of Jesus to declare that Jesus is Lord over our city. And that for me was a defining moment in my life and my story. So to be here with you tonight and just to see this crowd a few months into a church plant is just like a breath of fresh air for me. And I just, the scripture that comes to mind is that beautiful line in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And what I love about your story is you're just getting started. I mean, literally, you're like at the end of the runway and the, the landing gear aren't even up yet. You're just Getting off the ground, and who knows what is to come in the future for your community, for the relationships that are to your right and to your left, for the people you don't even know yet, for the people that are yet to come to faith, people that right now are not even a part of the kingdom of God, that a year from now will come out of the waters of baptism and join the Van City community. Like, there's so much, so many stories of healing and prophetic word after word, and salvation and justice in the city and cultural renewal. There's so many good things. To come. And so I'm so excited to come back and visit in 20 years with Grandpa Josh or whatever and, uh, and see what you're up to. So I invite myself back again 20 years, in 20 years. Uh, hopefully before that too. We'll see how tonight goes. So hey, um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 1. Sounds like most of you have one by now. Daniel, uh-oh, I'm having issues. There we go. Ta-da. Sorry, my iPad died right before tonight. Not good. Here we go. Daniel chapter 1. So last week we started a, you started, and we're doing the exact same thing down south in Portland. We started a brand new series called Life in Exile on Becoming a Creative Minority. To recap the basic idea, if it's your first week here or you missed last weekend, we are living in a new cultural moment across really all of the Western world, in particular particular anywhere like the Pacific Northwest or the West Coast of America, any kind of a, for the most part, secular, pluralistic, Western context. Over the last two or 300 years, and in particular over the last two or three decades, there have been a number of tectonic shifts under our feet. The ground has moved. So last week we talked about the shift from a majority to a minority minority, from the center to the fringe, and from respected to disrespected, and we're now full on in what social theorists call a post-Christian world. And the metaphor that best captures this kind of a cultural moment that's used all through the Bible is this metaphor of exile. And it's used, in the Bible at least, for whenever the people of God are a minority, and I don't mean that in an ethnic sense, but are a minority in a culture where the dominant values are alien or even hostile to the way of Jesus. Jesus. And so last week, we said that there are two postures that we want to avoid at all costs. So the first is this idea of separatism. That's where Christian is not a noun, as it should be, but it becomes an adjective. So you have your Christian church, and your Christian coffee shop, and your Christian bookstore, and your Christian school, and your Christian orthodontist, and your Christian auto mechanic your christian like toothbrush everything that you have like you put the word or the label christian it be, christian becomes a genre or whatever and that obviously is not a way forward but then the other posture that is even more of a problem for a lot of us in the world that we live in now is syncretism where you simply assimilate into the host culture and this is a far greater problem at least down south in portland and my guess is for a context like vancouver or at least downtown vancouver and so we said there's a better way for forward. And it's this idea of a creative minority. That was a phrase made popular by Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. For at the rise and fall of civilization, at that zenith point, right as a civilization is about to tumble into decline, there comes along often a creative minority, this kind of distinct but not separate, right there in the middle of the culture, group of people. And it's a community. It's not an idea or an ideology. It's a community of brothers and sisters, a family, that work for the healing and renewal of culture at Here's my definition of a creative minority in the form of a church. It's a community of followers of Jesus seeking to rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church and apply them to the soil of a post-Christian world. And I would argue that there is no closer parallel to our cultural moment in the Old Testament. And you guys have been reading through, a lot of you, the Old Testament for upwards of seven months now. This story of Israel from Genesis all the way to Malachi. I don't think there's any closer parallel anywhere in there to the world that we live in than this moment of exile that we read about in Daniel and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah and even Chronicles when Israel was away off in the city of Babylon. And so for tonight and over the next the rest of the summer, Daniel will be our kind of guide to navigate the strange new terrain that we call home. Now the book of Daniel, if you've ever read it before, it breaks right down the middle. The first 6 chapters are stories about life in exile, and then the last 6 chapters are prophetic, kind of a pointer to the future. So we'll spend most of our time, but not all, in the first 6 chapters. The plan for tonight is to work all the way through chapter 1. That should take 10 or so minutes, which with me means about 30 and then we'll that was a not funny joke okay and then we'll step back and kind of talk about what it all means for you and me tomorrow morning when we wake up okay I can go as long as I want this isn't my church what's the worst case scenario I don't get invited back for two decades you know Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. So to bring you up to speed, if you've never read this story before, Judah, that's a name for the southern half of Israel, was located right at the nexus point between three empires, Egypt to the south, Assyria up to the north, and then Babylon to the east. And the 6th century BC, was a time of enormous upheaval all over the ancient Near East. All three empires were at war. First, Assyria fell to Babylon, and then Babylon had its eyes on Egypt. And so in order to get to Egypt, it had to go straight through Israel, in particular the capital city of Jerusalem. So tragically, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with, and there's that line, the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now that line, the Lord delivered, is tapping into this story that a lot of you have been reading for the last seven months of your life in the Old Testament, the story of Israel. To summarize, God called Israel to be the sons and daughters of Abraham. Don't think the modern geopolitical nation, but the ancient ethnic group of the sons and daughters of Abraham. He called Israel to be a covenant people, in the language of the prophet Isaiah, the light of the world. But over and over again, Israel turned to idolatry, the worship of other gods, and to injustice. And after hundreds of years, literally, of God warning Israel, if you've been reading through the Old Testament, you've been reading through the prophets, prophet after prophet, warning after warning, listen, turn around, come back to me, turn away from idolatry, turn away from injustice, stop wreaking havoc on the fabric of society. And finally, after warning after warning, fall on deaf ear, God said, all right, enough is enough. And he takes away in the story his hand of kind of covering over Israel. And literally within a year or two, Israel is not only destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the army of Babylon, but is dragged away. The people that are left and still alive are for the most part dragged away to exile in Babylon. And then we read that fascinating line. It's a little bit weird if you've never read this story before about the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the treasure house of his God in Babylonia. This is a, this was common practice in the ancient Near East. Uh, the gods were thought to be located in not only time but also in space. So you had a god of this nation and a god of that nation. And so, if your god, if your army defeated another nation's army, it was thought that your god defeated another nation's god. And so, this was a kind of an ancient form of trash talk. It was a way of saying, "My god, beat up your god." You would take a relic, or in this case, an article, stuff from the temple of God. You would confiscate it. You drag it. You'd put it in the treasure house of your god back in your country, in your city, and it it was way of saying, my God, beat up your God. So the point here is that at least if you're a first century Jew, I'm sorry, sixth century BC, Hebrew boy, like Daniel and his friends that we're about to read, this is, this is earth-shattering stuff. Not only has your nation been defeated, but in your worldview, your God has been defeated, the God of heaven and earth. This is really just gut-wrenching stuff. And then, before we move on, I just, I just want you to wrap your head around the gravity of this idea of Babylon. So give me a few minutes to nerd out on you, history channel-wise. The regular guy will be back next week. And, uh, and then we'll move on. So Babylon, if you know anything about the ancient Near East, Babylon was the zenith of the known world, the zenith of all civilization at the time. It was the largest city in the known world at 2,500 acres. It was 80. Its walls were 80 feet thick. 320 feet high and 56 miles long. That looks like it's out of a computer game. Forgive that. But that does a great job of capturing the idea. You'd enter the city through one of a number of gates named after the Babylonian pantheon. Here's a picture from the Pergamon Museum in Berlin of the Ishtar Gate, named after the goddess of love and war. While you single people, just so you know, it's essentially the same thing. Notice... How the gate is decorated with blue and gold tile and artistry all over the top. That was a sign not only of the opulent wealth of Babylon. That's not a big deal today. That was a huge deal in the 6th century BC. But also of the artistic and architectural brilliance of the Babylonian civilization. But that wasn't even the most stunning part of the city. It was this ziggurat, a tower-shaped temple called Etamanki, an Akkadian word meaning house of the foundations of heaven and earth. Does that sound familiar at all? Some of you, my guess is, you're thinking the Tower of Babel, and that's exactly right. It was hundreds of feet high, the closest thing to a skyscraper in the ancient world. Overall, the Greek historian Herodotus said Babylon far surpassed any other city in the known world. Now, I say all that because all through the Bible, Babylon isn't just a city. It's more than that. It's an archetype. So starting in Genesis chapter 11, which tells the origin story of Babylon with the Tower of Babel, which is now like mythology, there's that iconic line, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, end quote. And that is the driving ambition of Babylon, is to build a society apart from God. And this motif of Babylon, of society apart from God, if not in open rebellion against God, this literary motif runs all the way through the library of Scripture, from Genesis chapter 11, all the way through the exilic literature, Daniel and Esther and friends, all the way to the New Testament, and even into the very last book, the Revelation, where there are three entire chapters devoted to this idea of Babylon. And if you've read the Revelation, you know that it's fascinating. In Revelation, Babylon's no longer a nation nation-state, or even an ethnic group, it is a global economy based on trade and commerce and globalization and all that comes with it, rampant injustice, slavery, the selling of human beings for a profit, opulent wealth, luxury, hedonism, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poor. Does any of this sound familiar, any of this sound like the world that you and I live in? Yeah. And what's really interesting is there's so many people, in particular conservative Christians in America, that just don't want to read the prophetic literature in the Bible from Daniel to Revelation in a symbolic way. One of the many reasons is, in my humble opinion, because if you read it in a symbolic way, who is Babylon? Yeah, we are. I mean, not me, of course, but the U.S. is, the United States of America. We are the globe, the engine driving the global economy. We're Babylon, but nobody wants to be, if you've read Revelation, nobody wants to be the prostitute riding the beast. That just doesn't sound fun. That doesn't preach well. If you're a guest, you can say it, but Josh can't say it, you know, whatever. So there's all these reasons that, oh no, it's just dying. Josh, what are we going to do? I don't know if I know everything. This might be a really bad short sermon. We'll see what happens. We'll give it a little time. I can wing it for a little while. Um, Yeah, that didn't last long, did it at all? (laughs) So the point is, this is this archetype, and this of all places is where Daniel and his friends are dragged away to. Let's keep reading. The story goes on. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So, all you single ladies, that, by the way, that's like what you're looking for in a man, right there. Just model s, good looks, smart. That can be your life verse, right there. Just post it on your little Facebook page, your Instagram profile. Looking for Daniel chapter one verse five, or whatever. <laughs> And then we read this, Uh, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So these four men are chosen, and there's obviously way more young Jewish men in exile but this book is about kinda the autobiography of Daniel and his three friends and basically every every guy in the story is this young smart educated kinda from the nobility or the royal line back in Israel affluent people of means who are kinda dragged off into exile and put into this three-year cultural immersion program but there's this fascinating line if you look at chapter 1 verse 8 but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Whoa! You like that? Van City, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to try not to drop that. Boom. That's amazing. That's fantastic. And uh, so... So this is this is what's going on, if it's confusing to you. In this kind of ancient cultural context, your diet was a really big deal. And not just like in our world today, it was a really big deal. Not just at a health level, but at a spirituality level. So there were all sorts of restrictions, in particular if you were a Hebrew man or woman. Your diet was a marker of your spirituality. It was a sign of which God you were all about, which God you would worship. And so for Daniel, this causes all sorts of problems and issues. And then look at 11. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel Hananiah Mishael and Azariah please test your servants for 10 days give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see so if there's any doctors in the house this is like the first controlled trial ever, right? And it goes really well. They agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So any vegans in the house? Josh, this is like life verse right here. This is it for you. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, what exactly is going on here? Well, um, this is not like a God-inspired weight-loss plan or something like that. You're like, is it Atkins? Is it paleo? Is it vegan? It's Daniel chapter 1. Thank you. That thing is like blowing my shirt up, and I've been so self-conscious. I'm never <laughs> taught like this the whole time. Just like, let see what underwear am I wearing? What's going on? This is Vancouver. You never know. Oh, thank you very, very much. Um, so what's going on here? Well, the leading theory is that this has to do with the kosher laws. You've ever read the Torah, the first five chapters in the Old Testament, Leviticus in particular. There were all sorts of dietary laws and restrictions put on the people of God. And so in order for Daniel and his friends to eat the meat in particular from the king's table, he had to actually break the Torah, break one of the mitzvot in Hebrew, one of the commands of God. And for Daniel that was just not an option. It was a line in the sand. And Thankfully, he's able to get through on his little vegan diet thing, pass the test, and not only that, but actually do well. Look at 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. I love that line. God gave from the Holy Spirit, the implication is, understanding wisdom into the language and literature of the Babylonians. This is pagan, pseudo-scientific slash astrology kind of literature, learning that God was actually there with Daniel, gave insight into the culture. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. And I love this line. We'll talk about it next week. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So if you, like, are a crazy nerd and you actually know what that means, that's upwards of six decades later. So chapter 1, verse 1, third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, that's essentially the first year of the exile. And then chapter 1, verse 21, the first year of King Cyrus, that's essentially the last year. So Daniel's career... And Babylon spans well over six decades. This is a literary way, the author's way of saying that Daniel is the prophet and paragon of how to not only survive but thrive in exile. So that's what's going on right here in the story. Now, to take a step back and think about what all of this means for you, for me, your neighborhood, your job, your family, tomorrow morning when you wake up, there are two sides to this idea of a creative minority, negative and positive, right? So on the negative side, we have to figure out how to not get influenced by the culture. But on the positive side, we have to, that's not enough. We have to actually figure out how to influence the culture. So the plan is this week for me to chat about Babylon's strategy to influence Daniel, and then next week for Josh or whoever's on to talk about Daniel's strategy to influence Babylon. So this week we'll talk about how to keep from getting influence. So we'll talk about compromise. Next week about how to influence. So you guys will talk about calling. For tonight, I just want you to see Babylon's strategy to influence Daniel. I want want you to think about it deeply because I would argue it's the exact same strategy used on the modern day Babylon of the western secular world that we both live in, of Vancouver wherever you call home, to influence you, to kind of suck you into the host culture of which you are a minority in. So four things, if you're taking notes, write this down, and if not, just sit there and feel guilty. Um, First off, is this idea of isolation. So Daniel is isolated right there in verse 4. He's separated from his parents, his family, his home, the temple um, for worship right there in the center of Jerusalem or the ancient equivalent of church. We think um, that he's a teenager, 13, 14, 15 years old, right around there. Plus, on top of that, there's a social glue that a lot of people underestimate. It's why so many, no offense to you seniors in high school if you're in here, but so many 18 year olds go away to college and just do the dumbest things because all of a sudden they're isolated. It's why so many men and women do stupid things on a business trip. All of a sudden you're at a strip club or an affair or some crazy weird thing. There's this inhibition that comes when you're cut off from your community and your family. So the first step is to kind of get Daniel away from his community alone and easy prey but it just does not work because Daniel is there in the thick with his community, does not walk away from his three friends. They are in it together. It's one of the many reasons that you and I need to be in community. It's why this whole idea of missional community or life around a meal, around a table during the week, not just at an event on Sunday night, is absolutely central to the kingdom of God. Because to make it through exile, to live and make it through a cultural moment like the one that we're living in right now, we have to stick together. We have to be community. Coming and sitting in the back and watching is not enough. You will not make it. You have to do life with other people. You have to step into the messy, pain in the rear, glorious, beautiful tapestry that is community that is church in the kingdom of God. So first, isolation. Second is this idea of enculturation. And to those of you that are like grammar nerd people that is a proper spelling. I just you can spell it with an e or an i. I would just have you know, I had to look it up and fudge it a little bit, but it's true. So they are enculturated in verse 5 there in chapter 1. First, Daniel and friends are educated in the language and literature of the Babylonians. This is way more than learning Akkadian, it's social engineering. So this is designed not to just kind of teach Daniel and friends like, oh, here's the history of our nation. It's designed to make Daniel Babylonian, to brainwash him and friends from the ground up. And then, this is what I think is even more interesting, the best of Babylonian culture, food and wine from the king's table, the best of the best of the best, the odds are along with a female escort, as was the custom in the day, are brought before Daniel and his teenage friends. These are political refugees who have been on the road for months, probably not have a good meal, and who knows how long, young, single men. Like, can you imagine the temptation there? They appeal to Daniel's appetites and ambitions, and that is what Babylon will go after. It will go after your appetites, what you want, what you crave, what you desire at a bodily level, at a primal level, and it will go after your ambitions, what you want to chase after, even if it's not good for the earth, even if it's not good for your community, even if it's not good for your body, for your soul, for your, it will go after that. And our world just says over and over, be authentic which is usually code for just do whatever the heck you want, even if it's terrible. Like, just be true to yourself, all this just absolute, ridiculous nonsense. Not that it's all nonsense, but just most of it is nonsense. It goes after, Babylon goes after your appetites and your ambitions. And this is why Daniel lived into an alternative story. So he's regularly found, you'll discover this as you read through the book, reading the Bible of his day, what he would have called the Torah, what we call most of the Old Testament. He's regularly there, Bible open, reading it, thinking at depth and meditation around the prophet Jeremiah or whoever, living into an alternative story. One of the many reasons that we're reading through, that you guys are reading through the Bible together over the course of this year, and we're doing the exact same thing down at Bridgetown, we need to live into an alternative story. Under the overwhelming pressure of culture everywhere we go, we have to have this anchor point to remember, okay, no, that's not the real true story of the world. Every time I turn on my phone or get on the freeway and see that billboard and pull up my browser, like, no, this is the real true story of the world. So isolation, enculturation. Third is integration. Daniel and his friends, right there in verse, I think, 6, are integrated into society. So they don't get the luxury of hiding away in an urban ghetto or in a hippie commune out in eastern Oregon or whatever. They are right in the thick of Babylon, at the king's table, under the king's roof, in the king's university. And in place of that, Daniel made his life all about these alternative practices. Things like fixed hour prayer. He would pray morning, noon, and night. That eventually gets him into trouble. You'll get to that story in a few weeks. Things like fasting. He was found fasting to seek God and pray on a regular basis. Things like reading the scriptures, as I said. He would lean into the alternative practices of the people of God. And I would argue these are kind of what we call the spiritual disciplines in church speak today. That an exile like moment like the one we live in, it's more important than ever before to lean into the alternative practices or the spiritual disciplines, the habits of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Things like reading the scriptures, prayer, silence, solitude, a weekly meal with your community, church on Sunday nights. This stuff is not ancillary. It is at the front and center of how we live in an exile-like moment. So finally, isolation and integration, and then last is this idea of identification. And this is really the most fascinating one. Daniel and his friends are identified or renamed there in verse six. Now, in the ancient world, your name is very different from today. So your name is in his world was way more than a label, you know, to kind of make a dinner reservation or sign up for a spin class or rent a car or whatever. Your name was a one-word moniker for your identity, even more than that, for your destiny, for kind of the truest thing about you. One scholar, I think we have a slide, puts it this way. In the world of the Hebrew scriptures, a personal name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity, origin, birth circumstances, or the divine purpose that the bearer was intended to fulfill. Another puts it like this. Names are revelatory of the nature of a person. Now, all four boys, and stick with me for a minute, are renamed, get this, after the Babylonian pantheon. So Daniel, in Hebrew, his name means Yahweh is my judge. He's renamed Belshazzar. Bel is the Babylonian name for essentially Lord, which was the title for Marduk, the king of the Babylonian pantheon. Hananiah means Yahweh shows grace. He's renamed Shadrach, which means under the command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael, he gets the shaft more than anybody. So you notice how very similar his two names are, Mishael and then Meshach. Mishael in Hebrew means who is like Yahweh. Meshach in Akkadian means who is like Aku. So can you imagine you're a 14-year-old boy, and your entire identity is who is like Yahweh, the one true creator God. Then you are dragged away to exile, you're put into this university, and you are renamed who is like Aku, the moon god. And then Azariah, his name in Hebrew means Yahweh is my helper. He's renamed Abednego, which means servant of new, yet another god in the Babylonian pantheon. So do you see what's going on here? This is way more than just like, hey, your name sounds really funny and it's you know, hard to pronounce, let's give you a Babylonian name. This is a deeply oppressive move. This is social engineering. And it's designed to replace Daniel and his friends, Hebrew Jewish identity from the people of God with a pagan Babylonian identity. And what I love about Daniel is this whole thing is an absolute failure. Two signs. The first is that as you read through the story, Daniel never calls himself Belshazzar. So always he always calls himself all the way to the end until old age by his Hebrew name, Daniel. Call me whatever you want. My name is Daniel. He's rooted in his identity and his destiny as a man of God. And then what's even more fun is whoever the author of this book is, and whether it's Daniel or somebody else, it's either Daniel or it's based on you know some kind of an autobiography by Daniel. But the writer of this book, this is really fascinating. This is like a funny kind of nerd Bible moment. So he or she or whatever misspells the four Babylonian names all the way through. There's all sorts of weird, funky, odd spellings. And for a long time, scholars thought it was some kind of a problem with the text Like, you know, 800 years ago, a scribe messed up somewhere or whatever. But now we have all these ancient manuscripts from all over the world to validate that, no, that's actually how it was a very long time ago. This is intentional and on purpose. It's like the writer Daniel himself or whoever is saying, yeah, I don't really know how to spell that name, that Babylonian. I don't really even know. Who cares? That's not my real true identity. Because for Daniel, he was so rooted. My identity is not... Portlander or a Vancouverite or a hippie or a hipster or a yuppie or a suburbanite or mom or dad or white or black or American or Democratic or Republican or whatever identity label you wear. For Daniel, he was crystal clear. All of that is secondary at best. My identity is I am a son. I am a child of God. Now, if, um, if you're new to the Bible, new to Jesus, I'm guessing at least some of you are, and you pick up this story and you read it for the first time, I'm guessing you get to about verse 7 there where all the boys are renamed, and if you're like me, you're thinking, man, these boys do not stand a chance. Four teenage Jewish boys away from home on the other side of the world in this beautiful, intoxicating, seductive empire, there's absolutely no way. But instead, you read this key line. It's really kind of the fulcrum point in the story right there in chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. I would argue you should star that, circle it, underline it, whatever, tattoo it, whatever. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine somehow this teenage kid and his friends found the courage and the backbone to stare down an empire and say no to camp compromise and that by the way is what this story is all about the temptation to compromise daniel and his friends were under nonstop pressure the tyranny of majority opinion as we read earlier There are all sorts of dangers in exile, but this, I would argue, is at the top of the list. Like Daniel, we just stick out. We're different. We're not like everybody else. And so we live under this kind of tyranny, like this pressure, this overwhelming pressure to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. To compromise and just kind of give in, chill out, let it slide, talk like everybody, live like everybody, vote like everybody, spend money like everybody, eat, drink like everybody, mess around like everybody, just kind of fit in with society at all. And after you live in the world, what we often call culture, what the New Testament writers called the world in the pejorative sense, after you live in it for a while, it starts to wear you down. As a pastor, I see. This pattern, and not like everybody, but I see on a regular basis these people who in particular who usually grew up in a conservative church culture, often in a smaller town or something like that, move in in our context to the city. And it's like over time people kind of come of age, hit 20, 21, 22, get cool all of a sudden or whatever, and then just start to drift start to drift theologically and then start to drift morally and then start to mess around and then start to drift kind of away from church and it's like they're there every week and then it's like three out of four then it's every other and then it's once a month and it's like I don't know let's go to the beach today or something like that and eventually people just disappear from church and even from the way of Jesus the world is just so hard to say no to sociologists talk about the difference between hard power and soft power um, hard power is ISIS, convert to Islam, or we will cut off your head. And, uh, and there's a place for hard power. Uh, law enforcement, the criminal justice system is hard power. Like here are the rules, obey the rules, or suffer the consequences. Soft power is nothing like it. It's, it's the neighborhood where I live in. It's mimosa, number two, three, four. I was just driving down Main Street on the way in just seeing brewery after brewery after, and I love a good beer, but I love one, not like 10, all right? But man, just, that's soft power. It's just the allure. It's the seductive allure of, hey, have a couple more drinks. Hey, mess around with your girlfriend. It's okay. Hey, just blow your money on that third car that you don't need. Everybody in your neighborhood is doing it. Hey, you don't need to read your Bible. Like, have you heard of Netflix? There's a great show on right now. Like, whatever, whatever is, are dumb examples, but whatever it is for you, soft power is just, it's not a bully. It's not a tyrant. It's not a dictator. It's a siren. It's a seductress. It's Another glass of wine when you've already had too much. It's blow your money, don't give it to generosity and justice. It's compromise in your sexuality or in a relationship. It's to flirt with a coworker or whatever when you already have a husband or wife or whatever it is. And soft power is lethal because it's just so unassuming. Nobody says, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna just kind of grow up and I'm gonna hit 20, 25, 30 or whatever the age is. I'm gonna compromise a lot. I'm gonna grow numb, bored, apathetic and then I'm just gonna stop following Jesus. Nobody says that, but it happens all the time. How? One little compromise at a time. The fact is that sin, it just, it's like this antiseptic to the soul. It has this numbing effect At first you sin and you feel guilty or you feel conviction from the spirit. You feel like, oh my gosh. And you do it a couple more times and you're like, yeah, I feel fine. What's the big deal? Things that a year or two or three ago you never would have done. Now we're like, yeah, no problem. It just has this numbing, apathetic effect on you. Think of an affair, one of the few taboos left in our culture. Very few men or women, husbands or wives just wake up one morning in a healthy marriage and think, I'm going to cheat on my spouse today. Like, that just barely ever, if ever, happens. It's always the slow, gradual, incremental drift that happens over a long period of time. Sin numbs us. And little sins are the worst because they have a cumulative effect that we so underestimate on our soul and even our body. So to pause, you know, right here, is there anything that that comes up right now, just that starts to rise to the surface of your heart or your mind or the back kind of of, of where you're at and, and no guilt no shame that's not the point here is to no to artificial like, or to engineer something here just is there any is there an area of compromise that starts to rise to the surface right now of your mind or your imagination I have no idea what that would be for you um for me as I was getting ready I did this teaching uh, last week at Bridgetown, which was awesome because I did not have to write one this week, but kill two birds with one stone. That's a horrible way to put it for church. I'm so sorry. That's so terrible. I won't be back next week. Um, but I did this teaching, and so, you know, before I teach on anything, everything has to kind of come through my own life. I have to wrestle with all of this stuff before Jesus, and so as I was starting to pray about God, is there an area of compromise in my life? And of course, there was none at all, nothing. Um, but it's interesting. I had this week all alone. My wife and my kids were down in California for this family event that I was not able to make it to. Praise God. And, uh, no, I'm kidding. And uh, so I had the week to myself. I'm really introverted, so it's actually like, it's heaven for me to have a kind of the house to myself. So I got a ton of work done. And I would come home at night and I had the whole like night to myself, make myself a glass of wine, pour myself a glass of wine. And then I had nothing to do. So I actually started to watch Netflix a little bit. I know everybody says they don't watch a lot of Netflix, but I don't watch that much, but I really, so I get sucked into this new show. I'm not gonna tell you what it is. And it wasn't like porn or anything like, you know, scandalous. But it was over the line. It was something that just me as a man, as a follower of Jesus, I had just no business filling my mind and my imagination with any of that. And I noticed this weird thing. and I did not connect the dots until the end of the week. But through the week, I just started to feel this disconnect between me and the Holy Spirit. I wake up in the morning. I just felt this weird, like, was it guilt? Was it shame? Was it conviction? This kind of mild depression and this sense of, like, where I would read my Bible and it was kind of flat and empty and I just started to sense this like maybe you can relate to this, this sense of distance and this like gap between it wasn't like some huge thing, but I'm like, gosh, where it's a beautiful week. I'm alone, it's sunny, it's summer, this is all this is all great. Like where is this coming from? And as I started to pray getting closer to the weekend, I said there's a deep sense of conviction from the Holy Spirit is because of this stupid TV show that I was filling my mind with every single night. And I just, I knew it was wrong two or three years ago. I never would have watched it, but I just got sucked in. I had to know what happens to Tom and Grace. I'm like, what happens to Tom and Grace? I just had to at least get to the season finale, which then it was a cliffhanger, and that was the worst. And so then I had to start the second season, and it was even worse. So my point is I just got, I just got sucked in, and I realized this stupid thing for an hour or two every night is keeping me from the joy and the peace and the life of God's presence and nothing is worth God's presence nothing major nothing minor nothing is worth the cost of the joy and the peace and the life of God's presence like absolutely nothing is worth it And so as we start to wrap up this evening, I I just want to create space for you to even think, God, is there any kind of an area in my life of compromise? Anything that you're calling me not to feel guilty or shame about, no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ, but there is conviction for those who are in Christ. Is there a call for you to change, for you to move forward deeper into the joy and the peace and the life of God's presence? You notice as we wrap up that Daniel, he went overboard in his pursuit of holiness. It was a fascinating moment where he says, okay, I'm not going to eat the meat from the king's table, and that's because it was, you know, unkosher or whatever. But then he says, I won't have any food from the king's table at all. That's a little unclear, like, and it could be because it was put before the gods or something like that. But then he says, no wine. And you're like, Daniel, you're a Hebrew, like, you're all about wine. Like, that was a huge part of your culture. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no command anywhere in the Old Testament against that. But he says no to it. What? Why? Is it just a teetotaler? What's going on here? And this is, this is Daniel's way of saying, here's the line. I'm not going to walk right up to it. I'm going to actually stand well behind it as an act of dedication to the one true God, Yahweh. And we can call him a legalist all we want and say, oh, he missed out. But the reality is, not only did he make it through the exile, but he changed the world in the meantime, as we'll read in the coming weeks. Often in an exile-like moment, you know, we make the tragic mistake of erring on the side of freedom rather than the side of holiness. I would argue that exile is not the place to do that. There's an in-between, kind of ambiguous, fuzzy, in-Christianese, gray area where you're not sure, is this black, is this white, is this wrong, is this right? Well, question number one as an apprentice of Jesus is always, is this something that Jesus would do if he were me? The answer is no. It's a no brainer. And then the follow up question, if you're like, I'm not really sure, I don't really know, there's not a line in the Bible about this thing or activity or whatever, then I would argue, man, always err on the side of holiness rather than the side of freedom. Just because I don't think we'll get to the resurrection of the dead and say, man, I really wish I watched Game of Thrones. I just don't think it's gonna happen. I think we're gonna get there and we're gonna be like, oh my gosh, the presence of God is uncut joy. It's peace with no filter. This is unbelievable. And so much of this was waiting for me in my first life and I missed out on it. And for what, for that, what the heck? Will there be grace? Yes. Will there be mercy? Yes. But I, for one, don't want to miss out. Um, Back to high school, that same time period when I was a part of that little church plant, it was a formative time in my life. And um, I think, you know, obviously 16, 17 years old, that's right where, like, there's almost a fork in the road. In particular, if, like me, you grew up in a home where Jesus was at the center of it, or at least a part of it. And I remember at the same time as a part of this church plant, I read this little biography um, from the 1970s kind of prophet, hippie, counterculture, Jesus movement dude, Keith Green. Anybody know him? Like from, well, most of you are too young for Keith Green. But yeah, a couple of woos. Like he was a stud. He wasn't perfect, but the dude was rowdy. He was just like a kind of a modern day John the Baptist, Josh Porter kind of awesome dude, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and his autobiography, he died young and he wasn't perfect, but he was an amazing man of God. And there's this autobiography by his wife, actually. And I just remember the title of it. I don't even remember his story that much, but I remember I was really moved by it. And the title of the autobiography was this line, no compromise. That was just the best kind of phrase to encapsulate his life. And I remember as a 16, whatever I was, 17, 18-year-old kid thinking, man, that, that, that moment shaped me. That's what I want to be. I want to be a man. I want to be a disciple of Jesus marked by no compromise. And so that is the call of Jesus on every last one of you, in an exile-like moment, in a Babylon-like moment, in a Main Street, downtown, Vancouver-like moment. The call on every last one of you, with no guilt, with no shame, is to live a life of no compromise. And so, I know I'm a guest and I'm supposed to just like give you all happy stuff, but I do, with really no condemnation at all, and please don't sense that at all, but with conviction, I do want to end with just a moment, just to come before God and say, God, is there any area in compromise in my life where you just want to set me free and you want to lead me and guide me into more life? So would you just stand up with me as we shift gears and we move now into a time of worship by singing, as we come to the table, and for the many of us that aren't a modern-day Babylon, and we say, man, I have been right where Daniel was, and I ate the food, and I drank the wine, and then I had seconds and thirds, And then I came back the next night and the next week, if that's more your story. Man, the great news is we come to the bread, we come to the cup, we come to the body and the blood of Jesus to remember that the slate is clean. There is a better than Daniel, there is a Jesus of Nazareth who's made a way for you and I over and over to come back and to start over.